Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For this flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you, finally in person. This is great. I'm, I'm loving spending time with you here. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we're in a sermon series uh, on the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of character that sprouts in a person and in a community that are lively connected with God. And this fruit of character reflects the character of Jesus. And it's described by Paul in what we just read uh, as having nine traits. Nine traits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today we will focus on the trait of faithfulness. And we will consider it under these three headings. The strange times, the strange word, and the strange covenant. The strange times, the strange word, and the strange covenant. So let's start with the strange times. If in any regular year we New Yorkers knew that we live in a city of easy goodbyes where there's a lot of transience, this past year and a half has just magnified that by a thousand degrees. The virus situation and now with some variants uh, coming out, and the economic difficulties and uncertainties results in there being a feeling of standing on quicksand, doesn't it? It feels like we're standing on quicksand with very little to rely on. And so to think of committing or commitment, committing to anything, gives us the, the heebie-jeebies, as they say. Anxiety, apprehension. We're afraid to make commitments. Now more than ever, we're afraid to commit to people or to places or to our workplaces because we may show up one day and we may find that things have changed. That the people that we committed so much into have moved. Or the institutions or places that we invested so much in have changed. Or they are different. And it seems wise and safe to keep oneself at a distance from commitments rather than risking feeling that disappointment or even a more intense loneliness than we already feel. So holding ourselves back seems like the safe 
and less painful way to traverse these strange times that we live in. But beyond that, the heightened uncertainty of the moment. Faithfulness and commitment is something that we modern New Yorkers struggle with, don't we? I mean, that's why we wait to the last minute possible to say, yeah, I'll be there when we're invited to somewhere, right? We struggle with commitments. Our culture is comfortable with unkept promises, with broken vows. And we don't think much of unfaithfulness nowadays, whether it be in our public figures or leaders or in how business is done, we excuse it. And there's even an app for marital unfaithfulness. It's a business and we even celebrate it. We have parties, divorce parties, to celebrate the breaking of our vows. That's our culture. If it's not convenient to keep your promises, then break them. If it's not pragmatic to tell the truth, then tell lies. These are strange times that we live in. And because of the moment that we live in, and because of our general culture of how eroded it is, we need now more than ever the firm ground, the terra firma, the concreteness of this fruit of the Spirit, of faithfulness. We need now more than ever the environments that this fruit creates. Environments of predictability, of stability, of trust. In a word, now more than ever we need hesed. Hesed. The strange word, point number two. That strange word, hesed. It's one of the richest words that you will ever find in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word that is described, that describes this kind of lifestyle. It's translated as steadfast love, loyalty, devotion, loving kindness, faithfulness. It's actually used more often to describe, to describe God's faithfulness to us rather than anything else. But nevertheless, we are called to imitate the hesed of God by living a Hesed lifestyle ourselves. And the best way to understand abstract concepts, I don't know if this is true for you, but it is for me, is by looking at an example of this lifestyle. And one of the best examples of this lifestyle is the life of Ruth. In the Old Testament, the book of Ruth tells us the story. It tells us the story of a terrible time, a time of tragedy that came over the land of Israel. A time of famine and hardship and economic distress. Sort of like 2020, 2021, right? And it tells us the story of one family, a family of four, a mother, a, a mother, a wife, sorry, a husband, a wife, and, her, and their two kids, two sons. <clears throat> and, it, and it tells us that the place where they lived experienced this extreme hardship. Their hometown of Bethlehem experienced famine and so they leave their town to find a place where they can survive and they end up in the land of Moab sure it was an enemy of Israel but there at least they could survive and they could have an opportunity so they settle there and some time passes and they find work they have a house their sons marry things are looking hunky-dory right things are looking stable and then Tragedy hits again. The husband dies. And a short time later, the two sons also tragically die. To the wife, Naomi, devastation. 
she was left with nothing, no husband, no sons, and in that time, for a woman, that meant complete and utter ruin. All she still had was her two daughters-in-law, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And so Naomi has no reason to stay in Moab anymore, so she tells her daughters-in-law that she's moving back home to Bethlehem. And since Naomi knows that li the life of a foreign widow in the land of Israel would be extremely difficult, and knowing that they're still young and that she had nothing to offer them, she tells them, she, she tells them to go back home. She compels them, go back to your parents' house. Redo your lives. Find a husband for yourselves. Orpah reluctantly agrees to go back to her parents' home. But Ruth does not. Even though Naomi urges her again and again, and in one of the most epic expressions of fidelity, of committed loyalty, of commitment, of hesed, Ruth says this to Naomi. It's famous. Chapter 1, verse 16 of Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What an amazing thing to say, right? But I mean, we really can't blame Orpah though, right? She didn't do anything wrong. She did, Orpah, the other, the other, girl, the other lady that went back to the, um, the parents' homes, she did what every one of us would have counseled her to do. We would have said, Orpah, you're still young. Go, redo your life. And we would have turned and looked at Ruth with a blank stare in our face. We would like, what are you doing, Ruth? This is not wise. There's no future for you next to Naomi. Go back home. That's what we would have said to her. But a Hesed lifestyle on the surface doesn't make sense to us. On the face of it, it seems wrong. Why would Ruth commit herself to grumpy Naomi? I mean, she even changes her name from Naomi, which means a pleasant one, to Mara, which means bitterness. I mean, that gives you a clue, right? Of what she was like. She was probably not a pleasant, not very pleasant to be around. She was probably a grumpy, jaded, old woman. And there was only darkness in the future for Ruth next to her. But Hesed is a commitment that goes beyond the limits of the normal. It's not natural to us. And so the story continues. They both, Naomi and Ruth, they go back to Israel, to Bethlehem together. And they arrive. At, it just so happens that it was harvest season. So since they need to eat... Ruth goes out to the fields and works, and at that time the law allowed immigrants and the poor to gather grain from the, from the outskirts of the fields. And so Ruth goes out to do that. Field work. Hard work. If any of you have done field work, you know it's heartbreaking and that Mediterranean sun hitting you on top. It's harsh. But for an immigrant woman, it wasn't only hard work that she was going into, it was also risky work because there was always the risk of being abused. But because of her commitment to Naomi, she goes out there and puts herself at risk to bring back sustenance for both of them. 
And we also learn that it just so happens that the field that she had gone to work at belonged to a relative of Naomi, an older man named Boaz. And I'll save you the details. You can read it for yourself. The book of Ruth is only four chapters long. Read it for yourself. It's very good. But following the advice of Naomi, Ruth goes to Boaz at night while Boaz was sleeping as he guarded the place where they stored the grain. And in what was a highly suggestive scene, definitely not PG-13, she proposes to Boaz. It was crazy. Super risky. Her reputation as an honorable woman was at stake, not only because she came to him at night. If she was caught, Coming to him at night, she would have been thought as a prostitute and would have been stoned. But also her reputation. What if he said no? What would that do to her reputation? But nevertheless, because of her commitment to Naomi's welfare, she put herself at risk once again, and she goes into and does this. She was asking Boaz to marry her, because Boaz, being a relative of Naomi, could rescue Naomi's estate from bankruptcy. But in order to financially rescue Naomi's estate, Boaz would have to also marry Ruth, who was the widow of one of Naomi's sons. It was how the law worked in those days. The estate came with Ruth included. So, what did Boaz say? What did he answer to her proposal? Suspense, right? Like, like a soap opera. He says, yes. He had seen Ruth's boldness and cur Sorry, courage. He had heard of her character, her commitment and faithfulness to her deceased husband's mother. And he had seen her work ethic. He had seen it for himself. And so Boaz says to her, quote, You have shown me greater kindness than any kindness that you have ever displayed. That word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, committed loyalty, faithfulness. Boaz is telling her, in other words, by asking me to marry you, you have shown me how faithful you are, how committed you are, now more than ever. You see, Ruth was putting her future on the line yet again, tying her future with that of Naomi's. Not only was she willing to come to this foreign land and work hard, but now she was willing to marry this old man. Not because she was attracted to him, or because it was what he, she wanted, or preferred necessarily, but because she was committed to Naomi's welfare. And marrying this man would get Naomi's estate out of bankruptcy and would give them a future of hope. And I know that to our Western sensibilities, this is borderline madness. But it was her hesed to Naomi, her faithfulness to her, that drove her to do this. Amazing. And so he says yes, and he makes his intentions of marrying Ruth public, and he goes through the customary hoops of making it legal. And the story ends with hope being restored to Naomi as Boaz and Ruth marry and have a son, Obed a grandson for Naomi. Hope, a commentator notes. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Ruth's son, Obed, was the grandfather of King David 
from whom came the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. And so all of these seemingly mundane events in this story are woven into God's grand story for the redemption of the whole world. God weaves together the faithfulness of Ruth into his purposes. And he does the same with ours. The faithfulness of his people, their hesed lifestyles, to bring about his redemptive purposes in this world. And so the story of Ruth not only shows, what, not only shows us what a faithful hesed lifestyle looks like, but also invites you and me to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary details and decisions of our lives as well as we pursue to live lives of faithfulness and commitment. I wonder in what myriad of ways He is weaving the faithfulness of His people, even in all the difficult things that we've recently experienced with the virus and, and the political and social strife and the economic difficulties, into the unfolding drama of His redemption for our families and neighborhoods and our city. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Are we living faithful and committed Hesed lives? Are our lives characterized by faithfulness and commitment? Man, I don't know about you, but as I look at Ruth and compare myself to her, I don't even reach her toes. What a woman! Her faithfulness as a single woman, her faithfulness as a friend, her faithfulness in her work ethic, her faithfulness to her husband, both the deceased one and the new one, her faithfulness as a daughter-in-law to Naomi, her faithfulness to her adopted land, and her faithfulness to God. Behold, brothers and sisters, the fruit of faithfulness. How do we compare? I don't think we could ever compare with Ruth. But let's say that Ruth represents a fully formed, fully ripe fruit of faithfulness. Maybe we don't have the fruit that size or that ripe. Maybe ours is smaller, but that's okay. Let's look at some of the places where God has called us to be faithful in and consider how we're doing. Let's do that. Let's look at our friendships. How are you as a friend? Do you keep in touch? Are you present? Are you faithful to them? Perhaps faithful enough to share a truth they need to hear in a loving way. Or faithful enough to stick around when they tell you a truth that you need to hear and maybe don't want to hear. If you're single, is there faithfulness in your singleness? As a pastor would ask, how are you using the benefits that singleness presents? The greater measure of freedom, the opportunities of more breadth of friendships, the privilege of being more generous with our time and resources. How are you doing with that? For the married, is there faithfulness in our marriages? We made promises to our spouses, didn't we? We promised for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. Perhaps maybe this is a point of struggle. Maybe your marriage is going through some difficulties, especially in this context of a pandemic. And I'm sorry if you are going through that. Perhaps the feelings of love have long gone and you're barely surviving. Hold on. Hold on. If you listen to our culture, jump ship, find someone else, as if that is the answer. 
but don't listen to our culture. We know it's not easy. Faithfulness and commitment take work and sometimes is very costly. But God gives us the grace that we need one day at a time. Get help, seek advice, ask for prayer, work at it, hold on. For parents and children, is there faithfulness in our parenting? Parenting is difficult, I'm just getting a glimpse of it. And there are many things that we need to be faithful in, committed to loving our children and disciplining them, not idolizing them and understanding that we are merely stewards of them, fidelity and loving them when they grow up, when they make us proud and when they break our hearts. On the flip side, fidelity in loving our parents, in forgiving them, in respecting them, especially when they get on in years. Are we there for them? Maybe it's something as simple as helping with technology or listening to their complaints or going with them to a doctor's visit, whatever. But how are we doing with our fidelity with our parents or families or children? For employers, are we being faithful in paying fair wages? For employees, is there faithfulness in our work ethic? Are we, be, are we known for our reliability, for our honesty, for our timeliness, for our consistency? Are we faithful in our speaking? If we say we will do something, do we do it? Are we faithful in the places where we live for as long as we live there? Or do we just take and use? Or do we commit and invest in our communities? How about our gifts and our talents? Art and music and other talents that make our world beautiful. How are we, are we being faithful in the way that we're using our talents? It's difficult. Faithfulness. Hesed. It's not natural to us. It's not natural because we are selfish beings. Look at what Paul says in our passage. So I say, walk by the Spirit for you, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which are sexual immorality, that's, that is unfaithfulness to our spouses, impurity, devouchery, idolatry and witchcraft, which is unfaithfulness to God, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, unfaithfulness to our community, drunkenness, orgies and the like, etc. You see, by nature, we are self-centered, self-preserving, and self-seeking. And the only way that we can ever have the power or the motivation or the desire to walk by the Spirit or to live faithful lives, to commit even when it is costly, to have some sort of measure of hesed in our lives, is if we have experienced someone being faithful and committed to us. If we have experienced faithfulness and commitment ourselves, have we? Have you experienced that, brother and sister? Final point, point three, the strange covenant. I mentioned before that the word hesed is actually used more often of God himself than it is of human beings. And how has God shown his hesed, his faithfulness? He did it just like Ruth by making a promise and living it out. How did he make a promise? In the old days, in the ancient Near East, treaties and about treaties between kings were common, as you might expect, right? They can also be called covenants. And a particular kind of covenant that is strange to us today, but it was very common in those times, is one that is called the Caesarean Covenant in which basically a bigger king, stronger king, would bring a lesser, weaker king into a treaty with him. And the Caesarean Covenant had three basic parts. Part one, 
the big king would bring the little king and would tell him all the benefits that he has given him. For example, I've protected your land. I haven't chopped up your head, etc., etc., right? In part two, it would detail the responsibilities of the lesser king to the bigger king. So for example, you have, you know, they had to pay taxes to the bigger king. They had to send men to be part of the army. They had to be loyal to him. And then part three, there was a ceremony. And the bigger king would have the lesser king bring an animal and kill it, butcher it, cut it in half, and put the two parts of the animal on each side, and then he would make him walk in between the carcasses of the animal. And this ceremony was a public promise <laughs> and a very vivid demonstration of what the consequences would be if the lesser king was unfaithful. Imagine if that was practiced today, that would be something. But imagine what the lesser king was thinking as he walked in between the carcasses. If I mess this up, if I, this is what's going to happen to me if I am not faithful. In Genesis, God, the king of the universe, makes a cesarean covenant with Abraham. Did you know that? You can read, you can read it about it in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, but especially Genesis 15. We see that there's a part one. God comes to him as the bigger king making a treaty with the lesser king. And all the Caesarean covenants are there. God expresses all the benefits that he has given to Abraham. I brought you out of the land of Ur. He promises land. And he promises descendants. And he says to him, look up at the sky and count the stars. So shall your offsprings be. And he promises his blessings. There's a part two. Abraham's responsibilities. He said, he is told, Abraham is told, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Part two, no pressure. <laughs> and then the third element, the ceremony. You, you can read it in Genesis 15, verse 9 says, So the Lord said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And Abraham brought all these to him and cut them in two and arrayed the ha arranged the halves opposite each other. And remember, at this point, the bigger king would have the lesser king walk in between the carcasses. But surprise, surprise, God doesn't make Abraham walk through the carcasses. But God himself comes down and walks through the carcasses. What? Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, the smoking, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God came down. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You see, God himself walked through the middle of the carcasses. What is he saying? He's saying that he knew that Abraham would not be faithful. So he himself walked through the carcasses and in so doing, he say, he's saying to Abraham, I know you are going to be unfaithful. But when you are unfaithful, I will be ripped apart in your place. I will be faithful in your place. And the Bible tells us that God makes the same promises to us. That's the promise. But does God live it out? 
The entire Old Testament is a repeated picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God and all of, of all human, humanity's unfaithfulness to God. And yet God proved His faithfulness, His commitment to us in that He Himself made Himself killable, a human, so that He would be ripped apart in our place. Jesus was literally ripped apart in our place. On the cross, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed, Isaiah says. By His faithfulness to us, we are healed. What we see in the Gospels is that God carried out His promises. He lived it out. Do you realize that on the cross, by His actions, Jesus is saying to you and to me the same thing that Ruth said to Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you. I am committed to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I won't leave you. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Jesus experienced our death. He experienced the severity of God that we may always experience the faithfulness of God, His faithfulness, His hesed. Jesus has been faithful to us. He walked in between the wrath and the judgment of God for us so that we won't, so that we would, have, so that we would receive the blessings of God. That's the faithfulness of God to you and to me, His people. And when we experience His faithfulness to us in Jesus, that gives us the motivation to live out faithful lives here and now with those around us. He made the promises to us and He lived it out, just like Ruth. Jesus is the true and better Ruth. And He promises to be faithful to bring His work in us to completion, to take all of our tragedies and heal them and restore them, just like he did with Ruth and Naomi. And he promises to make us more like Jesus, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us, that one day we may hear from God these words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. What? If you know your heart, how would we ever hear those words from God? By grace as we look to Jesus, our faithful King, and rest on His faithfulness, His hesed for us, to us. That's the only way. And as we look to that day when we hear those words from God, let's live faithful lives here for His glory in all the places that He has placed us in. Please pray, pray with me. Lord, we thank You that You are faithful to us to see the extent of your commitment to us, that you would send your son Jesus for us to be ripped apart in our place, it is astounding. We are dumbfounded, Lord, that you would be so faithful and remain faithful to us who constantly show our fickleness to you, Lord. But because of your faithfulness to us, because it never ceases and in Jesus it is glorious, help us live faithful lives in, the, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our work, in all the places that you have placed us in, Lord. Holy Spirit, please produce this wonderful fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, 
and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.